Welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. This is your host, Ken Mossman. And today I'm delighted to be joined by David Taylor Klaus for Act One of our two-part conversation. And DTK, as those of us who know him and love him, call him, uh, opens Act One describing walking one very specific tightrope of his childhood. And as he said, dude, it was odd. I grew up a liberal Jew in the South, 20 miles from where the Klan reconstituted in 1898. End quote. He points to reverberations of the 1958 Atlanta synagogue bombing that impacted his early experiences back in the 60s and 70s. And he shares about how shocked his mother was when he said bye all to his classmates as he stepped off a school bus just days after starting school in Atlanta, having recently moved from Philadelphia, by the way. He unpacks the influence and beauty of navigating his life with undiagnosed ADD, highlighting how he developed his own ability to be present by listening. And as he says, being listened to is so much like love that people can scarcely tell the difference. There's a lot of very good stuff here, and we're going to let the conversation speak for itself in just a moment. Just a reminder, if you have not yet, please do subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting service. And with that, Let's take a dive. Enjoy. David Taylor Klaus, welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. It is a delight. A long time coming, I might add, to have you here. <laughs> well, scheduling with someone who's ADD always makes it a long time coming. So I'm thrilled to be here, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Likewise, likewise. So what was it like growing up in your part of the world? Um, dude, it was odd. You know, I grew up a a liberal Jew in the South, like 20 miles from where the Klan reconstituted in 1898. So my my growing up in Atlanta was fascinating, right? In what ways? Um, You know, it's interesting. You know, we're talking now more about um, white male privilege. And uh, on one hand, I got to enjoy all of it. And it was always right up until the moment Somebody down here found out our family was Jewish, and then I could literally hear the doors closing. And it, it, it's fascinating because, you know, I talk to, as, we, as, as I learn more about what other people's experiences were like, and we talk more about what my friends of color went through, one of the things we discovered is you know, like, they never heard the doors close. They were just never open. And so it's a fascinating, weird midline to walk. And, and as, you know, Atlanta fancies itself this little purple gem on the buckle of the red state Lauren belt. And they, we've called ourselves the city too busy to hate. Yeah, that's not true. Yeah. (laughs) So growing up here was, was, was a fascinating mix of belonging and not belonging. So lots of tribalism. And and when did you become, you know, if you think back to childhood, when did you, um, first become aware of, as you said, those, you know, those doors closing? Well, the first awareness that doors were there and that we had to think in a different way is every year at High Holidays, at the, 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 our version of Christmas and Easter, <laughs> the Jewish High Holidays, we had armed guards all around the synagogue. Even so, even as, as a kid? Oh, yeah, starting in the 1970s. 
you know, the, the temple bombing happened here in the 50s or 60s, 50s. And it, always part of the psyche that we always had protection and never really thought about it until it's like, you know, we, all, we knew their names. They were always there for all the holidays. And it was always, thanks for being here. And then finally we were asking about it, like, what's up? And, you know, we knew where the neighborhoods were that were safe to be in and where they weren't. And there was a, a country club that was open for Jews because all the other ones were not. So, I mean, and this is not about privilege, you know, uh, uh, religious persecution or woe is me. This was just what the culture was. And it was taken as a given. In, in, interesting. And, 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 you know, as having had a different experience, obviously I, I grew up in Jersey, not the, you know, not the South. Um, <laughs> And where that wasn't the case, I'm I'm curious when, you know, when you realize that oh, this is a little bit different than what you know other other Jewish folks deal with around in different parts of the country. Every single time we went back to Philadelphia to visit family, mm. yeah, I, I, we lived in Philadelphia till I was five. So, oh yeah, there's the added flavor of I'm not a local, I'm not a native. I'm, I'm what I would call a transplant, what they used to refer to me as a damn Yankee, which is one who came and stayed. Right. So yeah, I every time we went home for a family event in Philadelphia, I was keenly aware of how different the experience was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and what was it, and, and just what was it like going back and, you know, you, you weren't going back, it wasn't, it wasn't a commute you did every day, but what was it like for you going back and forth and realizing, like, oh, okay, you know, the 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 cousins in Philly don't have to are, are living differently than we are, or they're not experiencing the same thing. What was it like going back and forth that way? <sighs> it was an exhale. I mean, why do you think I went to school in Philadelphia when I went to college? <laughs> I was going <laughs> to ask like, about that. I, I didn't yeah. know you went to school in Philly <laughs> until just now. So <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, you know, my parents came to Atlanta because they were looking for a growing... My dad was a, a doctor and looking to open up his own practice. And in 1970, he was looking for... My parents were looking for a growing medical community, warm weather, and a hub city that they could get back to Philadelphia from very easily. And <laughs> evidently, they were driving through to Dallas, and they'd stopped in Atlanta to visit some friends that got snowed in here, and they stayed. Um, so there was a reason for being here. But when I looked at where I wanted to be and where I wanted to have anchor and roots outside of Atlanta, Philadelphia was the natural. It could be, I was also fourth generation Penn. So um, I at first didn't want to go there. I wanted to go to Northwestern, but I didn't get into the theater program I wanted to get into. So I, I had to double down on getting into Penn. So well, you answered my next question, and that was uh, so. And I'll ask it anyway. You know, what were the wh what were the experiences? Not just the going back and forth to Philly and realizing that that there was this difference, um, but as you look at your your childhood, your adolescence, your college years, all of those. W w bring bring us through some highlights that you would consider. Oh, that you know that pointed the compass. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a really good developmental direction for me. <laughs> um, well, I, my favorite story about that is an early one. It has less to do with um, 
has nothing to do with faith at all. Um, it's the third day that I was in first grade at the school that we had that I went to when we moved down here. And I had a very notable Philadelphia accent. It was quite thick. <laughs> and third day of school, mom's waiting by the bus standing next to her car and I get off the bus and I, I take a couple steps and I turn around and I say, bye y'all. And as I turn around, mom's jaw is on the floor. She's like, what the hell was that? I said, you got to talk to them like that or they don't understand you. So I, I learned very early to adapt language to the receiver, right? Speak to people where they are. And, and that has shown up for me throughout my entire life. That, that being engaged with another requires that you are aware of who and where that other is and where they're coming from. And I learned that one really early. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and how did it, <laughs> how did, I, I'm curious about how, how did, how did, how did mom and just adjust to, to <laughs> um, I, I adore my mother. Adjustment was not her thing at that, at that time in her world. She's, much better at adjusting now. It's amazing what grandchildren do. <laughs> and but for me, that that's a current that's run through. The uh, I'm I, I have been able to pass beautifully and minimize the upheaval in my world by being connected to folk in so many different realms and arenas and demographics because I connect with who they be who they are at their core rather than what they're doing in the world and our tendency i think culturally um particularly extroverted men is to connect based on what we do and i think that has us disconnected yeah so what do you attribute learning that how, how how did you you know how did you learn to connect that way one of the beautiful things about ADD, particularly living with it undiagnosed and untreated for as long as I did, four decades, um, is that <laughs> we have two time frames, now and not now, which allows us to be incredibly immersed and present in the moment. Right? The more complicated life gets, the more I actually have to attend to being present in the moment. But that was the default. The unconscious default was in the moment. Right? It was easier to let go of what the last thought was because our brains move too quickly. And, and it was easy not to get caught up in the future because we were so attached and engaged in the moment. So the ability to connect with someone, yeah. I think being listened to feels so much like being loved that people can scarcely tell the difference. When you're in connection with someone who's incredibly present in that moment, they listen differently. And I listened differently. I love the language you just used there. Being listened to feels so much like being loved that people can hardly tell the difference. Yeah. Yeah. How much of a difference is there? <laughs> well, I say if this was visual, we could probably play a game where it, where it was uh, apparent. I think we most often... People most often are so attentive to what they're going to say next that they're not always listening to the person to whom they're speaking. Alan Alda, oh my God, he told a story about this. Um, he at one point got a show 
like on Nat Geo or, or, or something like that. And it was an interview style show. And he did a ton of prep and had lists of questions. And, and he, and he was, he was ready. He's like, I'm ready. And he gets out there for the, for the live taping. And he's asked like the second question and the person he's interviewing looks caught off guard and says, wow, yeah, when my father died and then went off on a really deep, powerful tangent. And Alan Holter was so tied up in the, into what he was thinking and what his plan was. As soon as the guy paused, he just asked the next question. And the interviewee went cold. And everything after that was pulling IT. And, and I think when we are thinking about what we're going to say next and not what not being with who that person is and what they're saying, we miss all of the opportunity for connection and depth and value. Pardon the break. A quick reminder, if you have not yet, please subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite source of podcasts. Let's dive back into this great conversation with David Taylor Klaus. There's there's so much wisdom in everything you just said, David. I I think we could probably produce a six-hour show on just the last minute. Sorry, I didn't. The, the, those of you who are listening, uh, the visual over here is that David almost nosed his drink. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so your yeah, again, there's so much in what you just said, and the you know the wisdom of of listening in a culture that places so much emphasis on being heard mm. which is you know that 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 the art that the art of listening i think in many ways and i i wouldn't say that it's that it's lost because i think in many ways it's um there's a there's a, certainly in our line of work you know we're witness to a resurgence in 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 listening and and we're trained to listen and you know, as you look out, I'm going to ask you a, 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 a kind of a big question here. As you look out into the culture, you know, if at this point, at this historical moment, if you could wave a magic wand that would instantly impact the culture, what would you, what would you, what would you, what would you do with that magic wand? Hmm. It's a great question. The, the, the word that comes to mind immediately, interestingly enough, is hineni. In Hebrew, it means here I am. Here I am, yep. And I think, we, I think our failure is, uh, we can argue all day long whether it's socialization or education or acculturation, whatever the sy- systemic issue is, or all three. That, that has us being so attentive to where we're going, we have forgotten. By the way, we haven't had training in listening. We have been reminded how to listen culturally. We have lost a skill that is embedded in being human. So we, 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 are, we are so busy being time traveling 
thinking about the future or ruminating on the past, that we fail to be present. And the reason that we are, oh my God, oh, this is just a brilliant example of it. The reason we are disconnected and therefore and, and prone to demonizing other or othering people is because we're not present to each other. And what I learned recently, which was fascinating, um, and it doesn't matter which side of the political arena you're on. And so if you get triggered by this, enjoy. It's an opportunity for your therapist or your coach to work with you. Um, back in the days of Newt Gingrich, when the the when folk were elected to Congress, they moved their families to D.C. So five days a week they went to work. And in the evenings, they saw each other socially, even professionally. Their families knew each other. Their children knew each other. So they could disagree vehemently all day long. They could battle each other fiercely and they were still human to each other. What Newt did was bloody brilliant. He changed the work week to a three-day work week because the way he pushed it was these representatives needed to be back in their districts more. So all of a sudden the families weren't moving. The families stayed in their districts. The representatives and the senators moved to DC. So they were there for four days at best. They were no longer connected socially. Their families didn't know each other. So they became adversaries instead of colleagues with ad adversarial views. They became adversaries. And then they became able, because they were separated now and only in an in a adversarial relationship, they began to other and eventually demonize each other. And our, our system has never recovered. And, and nor is it likely without some cataclysmic change like a Tom Clancy novel, is it going to change anytime soon? Because we no longer, and the country is beginning to follow, we no longer see each other as just different opinions. We see them as adversaries. Yeah, yeah, and not just adversaries. I, 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 I love that story, by the way. I was unaware of that, you know, not just adversaries, um, but enemies, you know, yes. the, a tremendous amount of, well, as you put it, othering and in othering in that separation, the, you know, what falls into the gap is dehumanization. Oh. And that's very hard to overcome. It's very hard to overcome. And part of the, 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 challenge we're navigating, another challenge we're navigating culturally is that back in the late 1600s, when the term race was applied to humans, we are all members of the same human race. There are no, there are cultural distinctions and, and distinctions in geographical origin, but those are not racial differences. And, and we continue to use this word race that was foisted upon us by a French philosopher in, in, in a paper in the 1680s. And it has been perpetuated by white folk to divide us and to hierarchicalize, which I don't think is a word, each other. It is and now. It is now. It is and now. when Brian Van Hare talks about in Survival of the Friendly, Survival of the Friendly is talks about the language we use to simianize people that are black and brown. It is exactly that. It is othering them and stratifying us within our human race-ness and then making each other enemies and separate and wrong and bad and voting. And, and that 
divisiveness, the language we use of race and racism is perpetuating the very thing that we're fighting against. And, you know, mark my words on this podcast, that that, that language will be retired like so much of the other language around cultures and peoples that we have retired because they're pejorative and awful. It's screwing us up. The more we use language to divide us, the more people buy into the myth that we are separate. And spoiler alert, we're not. Yeah. And separation, boy, you know, there's again, again, that was another piece that we could do a six hour special on Um, (laughs) right there. The. So, so what do you see as, you know, if, if we were going to begin to chip away, I asked you about the, the, the magic wand before, but mm. if we were going to begin to chip away, whether, uh, uh, now let me find the words here. If we were going to begin to chip away at the, at, at, uh, at the walls of otherness, mm. where do you see as the starting places yeah shockingly easy now easy to name and much more challenging to do especially at a cultural level Uh, at the individual level stop wanting from and start wanting for we're really good at knowing what we want from the other person we're talking to we are not really that good at articulating let alone thinking about what we want for the other person. And whether it's the Dunbar's number of, you know, outside of our pod of 150 people that we can navigate relationships with, it becomes harder. Who cares? We're not even really doing it within our pod of five or 10 or 15 closest humans. We're really good at knowing what we want from other people. We're, we're terribly out of practice. I mean, general, generally, generationally we are out of practice in wanting for the other person you know many of us grew up in environments where it was the parents wanted the kids to do better than they did so it looked good you know if you came home with a crappy grade or you got busted for something how many of us had parents who said how could you do that to me i was like that that's too sadly a too common occurrence that's not wanting for that's wanting from and we do that everywhere and and in leadership it's fascinating to watch people who want from their direct reports and not for them a boss is really clear on how many people work for him and report to him a leader knows exactly how many people they serve and that's starting from a wanting for it's different we need more wanting for, more being present, and more listening between individuals. Let it cascade out from there. Just start here, just between two. Based on that, what do you? What is it that you want for, you know, without necessarily naming any names, but what do you want for the people in your circle? Oh. I think for me, thankfully, that goes back, that goes right to purpose. And I know that, a, that the work I'm here to do and the work that <laughs> when, when I'm connected and centered and on target and on mission and on purpose, it's to un, 
earth and unleash the power of the heart and what I want for the people around me. What I want for everyone is to experience that. It's to turn in and tap into what we are and who we are and what's possible for us and stop getting trapped in our head. This melon on top of our shoulders is barely 8% of our body mass. And yet we spend 98% of our time stuck in our head, trying to figure crap out and ignore the rest of all the intelligence that's available to us. What I want is for people to take that 18 inch drop and center back on their heart. That's what I want for them. And ooh, which has surfaced is, yes, I want that from them too, because that, I want that from everyone because that's what will unfuck this globe. So I do have a wanting for and wanting from. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's good. That's good language. That's what will unfuck this globe. And, yeah. I, and I'm seeing as you're describing that, David, that this this feedback loop between, you know, if I when 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 I learn to want for other, you know, and be explicit about it, perhaps <clears throat> demonstrative about it, that 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 can't help but rub off. And other other is you know, uh, not so ironically, other is going to learn to want for me and to want for their others as well. Look, we, we can't not. That's what mirror neurons do. We don't just hear of somebody else's experience or at, at, a, at, at, a, at a genetic, not genetic level, at a cellular level, we lean into that. We can't help but mimic. You know, the way we're wired is, you know, learn a lesson, teach a lesson. And we, we can't not. The cack monkey, you know, research on Mount Fuji with potatoes go look it up, um, taught us that and showed it every time those studies have been recreated, it shows it again. We learn a behavior, it gets embedded, we pass it along, done. So learn a lesson, teach a lesson. And when we hear something, we can't help but try it on. We learn how to reject first and maybe consider later, right? Our brain first starts playing with it and trying it on and getting curious about it. We learn to shut that off. And I'm glad. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, we have to turn that back on. You know, unlearn our obstacle. The the that you were speaking to cascade though that you, the other can't help but learn from it. And that cascade is one of, is one of my strongest values. That you know, I can serve anybody, but serving someone who not but <laughs> I can serve anyone and serving folk who are wired to and lean into and driven to take what they learn and pass it on to others. That cascade is critical for me. I want my time, effort, energy, and attention placed there because it has the biggest impact footprint. Thank you so much for joining me, Ken Mossman, and my guest, David Taylor Klaus, for this, our first half of this conversation. And if you want to learn more about David and his good work, check out his website, D as in David, T as in Taylor, K as in Klaus, DTKcoaching.com. And you can find him on all the socials. His links are in the intro notes for both part one, act one, I should say, act one and act two of our time together. And if you want to reach out to me, please do that as well. Check out my website. You can find it via either KenMossman.com or Cirrus, as in the cloud, CirrusLeadership.com. They will both get you there. I've got some great stuff going on. Of course, you can find every episode of Mojo for the Modern Man there. Registration is open for my I Am 
formerly known as the Integrated Adult Man, class that starts in September of 2022. Love to see you there. And just come by and say hi. Sign up for my weekly writings as well there. And with that, be well, make it a great day, and we'll see you back here soon on Mojo for the Modern Man. Take good care.